Hi, and welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight, an investigative podcast for anyone whose role relies on finding patterns, digging through the evidence, and unearthing crucial bits of information. I'm Lily Kennett. And I'm Juliet Young. And as those of you who've been listening know, we are both investigative partners at Shillings. Uh, And this week, we've got the total pleasure, the absolute thrill of being joined by Susan Kent. Hello. Hi, Susan. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Let's introduce Susan quickly. So Susan worked for 15 years at a multi-strategy hedge fund, which we won't name, uh, before working with Lily and I. In fact, I think you started working with both of us exactly four years ago. I looked it up. Um, and then left a couple of years ago to set up your own consultancy um, uh, where she advises hedge funds and companies on investment opportunities, uh, legal claims and activist shareholder campaigns. Is that right, Susan? I got that right. (laughs) Yes, that's it. Thanks. And we wanted to get Susan onto this um, podcast because she's absolutely Um, brilliant at unpicking the financials of publicly listed companies and doing financial markets research and um, conducting analysis of ESG risks. Um, And essentially, in short, if we ever need to investigate something in the financial markets, we'll often turn to Susan. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to say this anyway, Susan. She also speaks French and Spanish, but just before the podcast described herself as a nervous linguist, but she is particularly adept to understanding uh, European companies. Susan, we can cut that, by the way, if you don't want it in. (laughs) Um, But tonight we're going to talk about the role of investigations um, when looking at short selling. Um, And probably before we begin, it'd be worth us just covering off what short selling is. Susan, do you want to begin by just explaining what short selling is? It's essentially an investment strategy that enables an investor to profit from the fall of a share price. So I won't go into the metrics because it's quite boring and it involves borrowing shares, selling them at a certain time and buying them back. Um, but that that's it, essentially, in a nutshell. It's a really interesting one for us to look at because it really affects companies and their principles when they're targeted by short sellers. Uh, but I think it actually, it, it's a tactic that sort of hits the, the definition, our titular definition, hidden, hidden in plain sight. It's something that is happening transparently, often in the sort of publicly traded markets, but where there's a lot going on just below the surface to sort of facilitate the tactic. And that's that's what makes it so interesting and also so potentially dangerous for companies. Yeah. I mean, there are different disclosure regimes in different countries. You find that in Europe, we have a much stronger disclosure uh, regime. So, you can actually find out on a daily basis who's shorting what as long as they're over um, a certain threshold. But in in the US, it's much more opaque. So you may not find out until the end of a quarter whether or not a fund is short a, a company. And of course, it's not unheard of for funds to kind of band together and sort of how... Oh, exactly. I think there's been, with short sellers... Um, there has been a degree of skepticism and criticism about their role in the market. 
Um, but actually, there is a fundamentally um, positive role that they have to play. Um, short sellers and activists um, will look really deeply under the bonnet of a company and come up with a conviction on the value of that company and will go long or short. And so the um, short sellers that, that release their reports, that publish these reports, um, have often a very a keen eye on on the detail that perhaps a company hasn't been entirely honest with. Um, so that that those are the kind of noble buccaneers of the market, and then there are the the more kind of shady market manipulators, which tend to maybe be a front for another fund. So you have a lot of anonymous, and we've been talking um, before about um, anonymous short sellers. Um, so these guys like Boatman um, Research, Culpa Research in the US, who publish reports and don't actually disclose their identity. They're not registered companies. They're very difficult to, to actually find out where how they are funding themselves and um, whether or not they they actually wrote the research themselves or indeed who they are. Have you got any tips on how you find out who's behind those anonymous research outfits? Have there been any kind of good stories of of those outfits being unmasked? Well, yeah, there there have been, and there's a very recent case with Cooper Research in, in the states, which is a well was a unknown, relatively unknown entity until a couple of months ago, when there there were a few uh, activists on Twitter that made it their mission to find out who was behind this 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 shady uh, research outfit. Um, and it actually came down to the metadata that was left on a PDF that they had put on their website. Um, and that, that started kind of a trail of breadcrumbs that, that led to um, the unmasking, or it's been the unconfirmed unmasking of the principle behind Culpa Research. But it still didn't really. Uh, it, it still didn't really tell us much about the funds that were behind this research, who, how he was supporting himself. Because when you looked at this, this one individual, it he doesn't come from money. He's he's been funded by from somewhere. So um, looking at some of his. Um, Twitter activity, you could see that he was posting redacted, the Culpa Research was actually posting redacted uh, letters of response from freedom of information requests in the States. Um, and when you went back to look at the freedom of information logs that you can get access to from the SEC or the FDA in this case, as it was a biotech, uh, biotech company, they the requests didn't come from Culpa Research. They came from two other individuals who were connected with other funds. And so that kind of gave you a chain of command. So you were able to start to develop a, a family tree, uh, really, of 
who the interested parties were and where potentially the funds may lie. But we're st it's still opaque. Um, and it can be, you know, it can be quite an, an arduous process, really trying to unpick all of it. So m my advice is to anyone trying to kind of unmask a, a short seller is there are clues you may not find a smoking gun and there may not be one single actor, but you need to um, potentially find the people that are doing your job. So there are these keyboard warriors, you know, that are on Twitter, that are trying, that are on other social media, Reddit, other platforms like Discord, that are actually trying to unmask who who uh, who are behind these short sell reports so it's um really an iterative process to try and find exactly who might be funding this activity i mean i i love that because it speaks to the value of that sort of old school investigative research i mean the stuff that juliet and i always bang on about is you know connect the dots look under lift lift the lids on things and there's not going to be you know you don't get a eureka moment uh mm -hmm. you may not ever get a eureka moment but if you can start to kind of find those dots and connect them whether that's through you know publicly accessible filings or looking at who's recently changed their position you know as you said the disclosure regulations can vary i mean i we had a case um we were talking to someone about whether whether they thought there was activist or short seller involvement in something and i I remember having a discussion on that about um, the way that you can kind of come at it from both ends, so to speak. So you can look at who's changed their position in the market and sort of draw inferences from that. And then equally, you can look at, uh, as you say, who's posting about a topic on social media, where that's been picked up and incorporated into um, a piece in the financial press or a piece of research mm -hmm. that's there circulated on social media so you know you've got the sort of end you the end position to look at and that gives you one kind of information and then you've got the drip feed on the other end and it's really sort of by by working at it from both sides that you stand a chance of getting into the middle of things yes exactly I think um also looking at uh situations where um you may find a lot of different funds singing from the same hymn sheets and they mm. may be borrowing the same language retweeting which isn't always an indication of of kind of a concert party activity or any kind of coordination but um it, it can give you clues so when you start to look at when a fund may have been um established um, whether or not there are certain disclosures, in particularly within the SEC, that indicate that someone is actually investing in another fund. So you find that, you know, Muddy Waters has disclosed that it has an investment in Wolfpack Research. You find that some of these hedge funds are actually invested in one another. Is this what you meant in... in the before this uh, podcast season, I should say that Susan sent us a bunch of research to read about short selling. Thank you, Susan. Um, <laughs> and there was an article about balance sheet partners. Yes. Yes. So and that is 
That is a big theme. I think that a lot of people don't realize you have some big name multi-strategy hedge funds that are invested in other multi-strategy hedge funds. You and and you may never find out, but it's whisper uh, as well as some clues that are in disclosures that can be buried. Um, but you find that there are close relationships, social relationships as well that. Um, uh, also charitable foundations that have been set up that are being, you know, that are getting invest investments, getting donations from other people um, within another hedge fund. There are kind of cozy relationships there that, that, um, that can influence. Mm. Uh, really, um, you know, the interesting story about short selling at the moment is that the markets really have turned against them. Um, and we've seen that with GameStop, um, where you have, you know, Citroen Research um, losing billions of dollars um, and uh, coming out and saying, actually, when we established ourselves 20 years ago, we were the... Um, anti-establishment fund we wanted to you know do everything that break the rules expose the frauds um and and they did do some of that um but now they've said actually GameStop showed us that the retail investors actually were essentially they were they were acting as a um rebellion against the short sellers the hedge funds Hmm. Um, and they've realized that they are part of the establishment now and they want to break away from that so they're they're not um, publishing short selling reports anymore they are only going to publish long only reports that retail investors and everyone can profit from Um, Hmm. so um, because not everyone can short you need to have a special account to short you have to have a a special margin account and not a lot of people can afford to to balance that so um really interesting to me given that you know and you mentioned at the at the beginning of this session that you know this is um uh, although it's kind of become uh, sexy i suppose to refer to activists or short sellers as the sort of baddies if you will or to sort of treat treat that with a certain amount of suspicion um, it's also a way to sort of regulate the market and, you know, a healthy, a healthy market allows for this type of activity. You know, it's, it's yes. a way, as you said, of sort of making sure that companies are accountable. Um, and what I'm really interested, you mentioned GameStop, it's an absolutely fascinating case and it sort of shows the power of the hashtag. Yes. <laughs> um, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to, cause, cause we have a sort of, established way that we think that this happens and you know there's been films made about it um, um and uh, and i i wonder if in light of this summer's activity and the retail investors and uh, the way that social media kind of drove so much of the gamestop story i wonder if you could say a few words on where you see the activity going and and um you know i realize that's a tough one to answer i know <laughs> it is I don't think anyone knows. Um, I, I honestly don't. Um, I think we are, and, and we've spoken about some of the side, the side products, the side effects of um, the pandemic. But you have a combination of 
access to trading apps such as Robinhood, you have the pandemic and its furlough creating, you know, basically armchair traders. Um, and they have no experience of trading, really. Um, a lot of these retail investors have no idea about what the companies are that they are actually trading in. And so it creates this kind of, you have the short sellers that are, that are trading on the fundamentals of the company and they're saying this company is not, this company is going to fail, this company or this company's value is, is definitely in decline. And then you have the, um, the flip side of that with retail investors just saying, hey, let's just rally this stock and let's all pile in. And it's happening again. It's happening right now with AMC Entertainment um, in the US. Um, it's happened to to others, and we don't know we don't know where it's where it's going to head. Um, and anyone trying to unpick that is is uh, is, it good <laughs> it's luck got a lot, is good luck to them. Um, yeah, I think there may be, um, you know. There are some analytical companies out there. There's there, there are those that actually, you know, forensically look at the data um, and try and try and predict where this may may end up. But that is, you know, we're at the this is an irrational force uh, in the market. But what it has produced is um, a degree of caution on the side of the the short sellers and they now don't want to publish reports they've you know you've got citron research isn't going to publish anymore and i think that's very sad because it's driving it's driving the debate underground and um whereas before we were they were having you know these 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 very lengthy um pieces of research were being published and we could you know, we could read it and we could assimilate it and, you know, we could actually try and um, retrace their steps and see whether or not what they're saying is the truth. Um, and that all of that activity is 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 now going to be, well, they're probably going to still going to share things on Twitter, but there, there, there may not be this detail that the market would quite like to see. Um, and so it kind of, it, I mean, in my opinion, it kind of gives companies a bit of a, um, a breathing space because a lot of these short sellers, um, they hold the companies to account. They, they definitely look at, um, you know, they're, they're saying the things that the market isn't hearing otherwise. So... Um, I think that's an important role that they play. And um, but so long as they're telling the truth, <laughs> mm. and there, because there are good and bad actors, um, as you you both know very well, there are some good research reports, and there are some very bad ones. So um, and and so you just need to, you know, have having access to that is a good thing. I think it's especially interesting, Juliet, and this is, I know we, we're constantly asked on the podcast, aren't we, to, to sort of um, 
provide some thoughts on online anonymity. You know, it's, it's a theme that runs through so much of our work these days that people can sort of set up accounts or write articles or put together websites anonymously. And, and listening to Susan, it just occurs to me that we're sort of moving from one form of anonymity. So, you know, on the sort of, uh, on the, on the sort of, um, difficult end of the spectrum, you had sort of anonymous research reports that might not be of high quality. So that's one kind of anonymity. But now, you know, when you look at people like the investors in AMC or GameStop or any of these, there's a there's a movement to rally the stock that's starting and it gathers momentum, but someone's starting that. And, uh, you know, maybe it's cynical of me, but I'm, I'm willing to bet they're not a disinterested third party, you know. Um, I know. And what you have in those situations as well is that the companies themselves are powerless. Um, they actually are enjoying it because they issue more shares and they paid on some debt and uh, their directors may be, you know, trading in their own, their own shares. Um, and, but, but ultimately if it is the kind of, a distorted market it's it's not it's it's not a stabilizing force it would be great season to hear a bit more about some of the tools and the places that you um look for information and you mentioned earlier about the disclosure regimes in the us being different to that of europe um what, what is where would one go to look for information about who is shorting what stock in Europe, can you just tell us a bit about the the sites that you look at? Um, yeah, sure. That that find... That's, I mean, it all comes under this EU directive. Um, I believe it's the European, well, the European Securities Market Authority (ESMA) um, has a website, and you can go on there, and they have a list of uh, links to each of the member states' authorities that have to disclose at the end of each day um, where which companies are being shorted on their exchanges. Uh, and so if they're UK stocks, you'll have US funds, you know, you can go to the FCA website, there's a spreadsheet that you can download and you can see exactly what that is day on day. And it's a it's a spreadsheet still. It's a spreadsheet. <laughs> that yes. sounds really old school. <laughs> I know, but some of the, some of the member states don't. I'm afraid some of them are PDF, which isn't as good. Um, yeah, and, and trying to search through those is is arduous. Um, so so it's a it's a very simple. You know that that's your starting point. Um, but then you you need to kind of you you can look back in time as well using that same platform. So it is a, a bit of data scraping really across, you know, a range of dates to see where, where um, positions have moved. Um, and it's the, that's the same in Europe. Uh, in the US, it's, it's the 13F um, that um, funds have to disclose and they disclose long and shorts and it's that's at the end of every quarter and um, so often by the time you reach the end of that quarter you know the, the news is already caught out up of date. that 
Yeah, mm -hmm. and and so the news cycles in the states tend to there's a, there's a, there are always leaks in the states anyway. So I think the media gets gets hold of the information if there's a if there's a big fund that is you know got a big short position in a in a in a U.S. stock. You can see that um, you can see that filtering through from banks, for example, that disclose that information, leak that information. Um, the the rest of it is, I guess, looking at past. I mean, the the way I I typically look at these situations is there are if it's not in the media and if it's not well, it should be it should be on the member states' websites. But if it's not there and you're looking at a U.S. company and you're wondering who's who is short, um, I do tend to look at um, the uh, social media platforms. Um, and so there are a lot, and Reddit chat rooms also um, have a lot of speculation about who might be shorting. Um, but really there is no kind of, there's no silver bullet. There's no kind of magic potion here. Um, it is taking um slices of information from different places so if if you're in the us and you want to know who's shorting there there are a lot of there is a lot of activity on twitter um um because normally that is the platform through which um you get most exposure mm -hmm. um uh the rest of it is um looking at to see whether or not there there is a disclosure and if there is then you can you might look at past cases where that short seller has teamed up with others and so you you build out a picture from there um but really it's 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 a very iterative process um uh, but some of the clues are are nearly always in the public sphere um, and some, you know, people can't help but chat, particularly if they're feeling boastful, as we've I seen. Think, <laughs> I think that's why it's been, you know, short selling has been sort of so sensationalized because you have the kind of the mystique of of who's doing the short selling or who's publishing the research report. And it's kind of the ultimate financial markets who done it, isn't it? It's sort of people are trying to kind of uncover a mystery. <laughs> Yes, in a way that you don't have to when you're trying to understand who owns shares. I know, and it's often a race. I think it's often a race for you and I to, if somebody, if there's an anonymous short, to to retrace those steps and see whether or not what they're writing about is if it's good research or if it's bad research. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's there's always a correction afterwards you need know, the stock may respond to initially to a short report but if the market doesn't agree and doesn't see that the data adds up then and um, the stock will re respond it will recover susan's comments made me um you know and it's an angle that i think is probably under explored at the moment but you mentioned that when um 
when companies are caught in a sort of rally that's created by retail investors, they're they're sort of very much at the mercy of that. They're kind of riding it, but that that creates a kind of interesting dynamic for their principles. And from a sort of reputation point of view, uh, though that executive team dealing in those shares, mm -hmm. that, that of course, there'll be disclosure records around that, you know, for a list of company. Um, and someone will be able to put together that timeline and look at when people in the C-suite cashed out of certain options. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's an additional layer of, um, shall we call it fun? Exactly. And I think when I looked at GameStop, actually, I was wondering, has anyone done this yet? <laughs> I think this is coming um, because there's quite a lot of activity. There's quite a lot of buying and selling by different um, by different directors during that time, and there's nothing nothing wrong with that. But it sometimes things don't smell good, so good, you know. Um, you know what do they know that we don't know, um, or maybe they don't. <laughs> Well, and, and with that, you know, we, we've mentioned already that, you know, we're moving from sort of one form of anonymity to another. It creates uh, an, an additional moral hazard, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So in summary, it sounds like you, as an investigator, you need to consider the, the actual content that's being published, how it's being disseminated, who it's being disseminated by and who those that are disseminating it are kind of working with or close to. Is that a kind of fair summary of? Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe so. I think that um, also looking at who else is saying that, you know, who else is publishing that, that same information. Um, it may be that this is someone who's published before, but under a new guise, um, mm. you know, and that has that has happened. Um, uh, you know, looking at the motivations are, are I think that's also key. There has to be a fund. There has to be someone behind the scenes that's actually funding this activity or stands to gain. And so if you draw um, if, you, if you reach a dead end or if you've got, if you've identified someone, but you can't identify how they are funding themselves because they simply don't have a pot of cash, um, it, it you, you need to look closer into the details. So with corporate research, you looked at um, the freedom of information um, requests, the, the logs. You could identify some family offices there that actually had been asking the same questions as the as Cooper had. And, it, and so that, that is how you start to unpick, um, you know, and, and try and populate that, that, that org chart, that, mm -hmm. that lovely I2 chart that, that we all love to put together that can piece it all together and make it look really simple. <laughs> For, for those um, listeners who don't know what an I2 chart is, it's a piece of investigative software that we use to, to map connections and relationships between different parties and can be really useful in unpicking, you know, who might be behind a particular scheme or... Um, oh, <laughs> well, Lily's just reminded me... 
<laughs> you go, Lily. <laughs> well, and to Susan's point of the data being available in an Excel, uh, although that seems old school, you can actually uh, export an Excel into Investigator's Notebook. Uh, and it yeah. can show you the connections that you might have trouble seeing. So, you know, um, it's it's hours hours of fun for anyone. It, it, it can also be very useful for keeping young children entertained during lockdown, as I discovered. <laughs> and um, can, can can we tell them about the Harry Potter? Yeah. So during the first lockdown, my nine year old put together an I two chart mapping all the characters and relationships in Harry Potter. And then in the second lockdown, my then seven year old put together one about the uh, characters in Top Gun. Um, um, which are, I, both I of which are public both of which are published on LinkedIn <laughs> and, and depressingly for me and Juliet um, the Harry Potter i2 chart has got more attention more likes more republications around the world than anything either of us have ever done you know yeah. how many likes <laughs> I think it's about 50 50,000 views which is the <laughs> highest number of views I've ever had on a LinkedIn post no <laughs> wow yeah. that's that's incredible. I mean, hat, hats off, hats off to you <laughs> for teaching your children how to use IT. That is brilliant. Um, it actually kept him busy while I was doing a conference call. That's why we started it. <laughs> and we can probably begin to wrap. So, Susan, if you want to weigh in with, you know, your any final comments, then I would just have- say that if you're looking at an anonymous short seller and you're an investigator, kind of approaching that problem. Um, my first port of call is to identify if there's someone else who's already done the work for you or has met who has gone part of the way towards the goal um, because you've, you often find yourself reinventing the wheel and, and then discovering this amazing research person on some social media that's already doing that work for you that's a brilliant tip and actually applies to so many lots of different <laughs> investigations don't reinvent the wheel there may be someone that you could I mean if you're able to you know join forces excellent but if you can borrow their their stuff and get a head start and then um you know, pay attention to all the public disclosures, look at the metadata on the websites, look at whether or not there are there is a lot of activity on a certain hashtag on on um, Twitter. I mean, we, look, we talked about this before, but there's this hashtag short mafia um, that has speculation about, you know, a club of short sellers that are trying to you know, basically destabilize the market and drive down prices of certain stocks. And they are the ones that are being targeted by the Reddit, uh, Wall Street bets, uh, retail investors. Pay attention to all the information that you have and don't discard um, information about historical trades because if you hit a dead end, sometimes there are clues in the relationships that have already been forged in the past that you can probably find um, have uh, clues to what is currently happening. Those are fantastic tips. And, you know, the one thing we haven't had time to go into today, and I, and I don't think we will, um, but maybe it's something to revisit um, 
on, on another um, in another episode. But in terms of defending your site yourself from uh, a short selling attack, I think it's, it's worth sort of just mentioning very briefly how personal that can be for executive teams who are coming under pressure, and that you know at the same time you're looking at. Um, what's happening in the market and how that's affecting you. Um, don't don't forget to bolster your own defenses. Don't forget to look at your track record with a critical eye to sort of see how you might come under pressure. Um, so if that's something people want to pick up on in a subsequent episode, you can email us at plainsight at shillingspartners.com. So thank you, Susan, so much for coming on this week and being our guest. Um, it's been a pleasure to um, speak to I- you again. Thank you. This is my first podcast. So thank you very much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it.